Welcome to Health for Good, Amity Health's new podcast series. Today we're starting with a big topic, something that we're seeing more and more of, and that's eating disorders. I'm joined by Beck Vincent and Alistair Waters, part of our mental health team here at Amity Health. Disordered eating is famously very complicated. Disordered eating comes in a couple of different forms. There's eight different diagnoses. The diagnoses are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, mm-hmm. other specified feeding and eating disorder, PICA, rumination disorder, and ARFID, and unspecified feeding or eating disorder. Anorexia nervosa, you led with that, and I can understand why you would, Alistair. I mean, that's the eating disorder that we've heard about the most. Beck, can you can you talk me through it a little bit? So with anorexia, we talk about restrictive eating. We talk about low body weight. So there's not it's not just restrictive eating. It goes there's a lot of layers to it. You talk about the layers. Where does it start? I mean, how does an eating disorder actually begin? That's an excellent question. When we look at eating disorders, we generally try to look at a biopsychosocial model of of disease. What does that actually mean? If you break it down, we're looking at the biology. So there's a genetic component. There's uh, the psychological factors, as well as the social environment that the person is in. So with eating disorders, the research shows that there is a genetic component. Um, If you have someone in your family who has an eating disorder, that makes you more statistically more likely to develop an eating disorder as well. With that being said, it also relies on psychological factors. So sometimes you hear people talk about the big five-factor model of personality and people who score high in neuroticism, people who tend to be perfectionists, they are more likely to develop eating disorders as well. So the big five, I mean, there was so much to pick up in what you said. So let's start with the last one. Yeah, so the big five personality factor model is if you break down all the different parts of a person's personality, um, what makes them individual and unique to them, um, it can be boiled down to five things. Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. I can see now that there's a kind of a, a pathway and a predisposition that would kind of lend itself towards developing an eating disorder well there's lots of socio-cultural elements to eating disorders you know we can look at the well let's look at kids at school okay so we know at the moment they reckon the statistics are about 60 percent of children in schools are all dieting at one point or another so it's not just about you know we can look at genetics but then we can look at role modeling you know what's happening in the family how's the family eating then we look and look at peers what are their peers doing how are their peers eating we then we can also go to the media facebook instagram all these things are adding adding to people's journeys of disordered eating and just eating issues as a whole. 60% of kids on a diet. And what what kind of age do, does that start? I mean, you read the odd media report about primary school kids. It can, it can actually start as young as about 10. So in terms of eating disorders, we know they can start young. We know that there's certain um, predispositions to eating disorders. 
How can you actually diagnose an eating disorder? Properly qualified medical professionals can diagnose eating disorders, so people like a GP. Um, the way the eating disorder is diagnosed is, be- is by looking at the symptoms that people have. The American Psychiatric Association um, releases a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, people just call it the DSM. Um, and we're currently in the fifth version of the DSM. The DSM says, if you do this and you do this, then that means that you have this label. So with eating disorders, what Beck was talking about before with anorexia, the list of the criteria in the DSM is the restriction of energy intake relative to requirements. There is an intense fear of gaining weight or of becoming fat. There's a disturbance in the way in which one's body weight or shape is experienced. So that's the body dysmorphia that Beck was talking about before. Um, and there are two, two subtypes of anorexia as well. There's restricting subtype, which means during the last three months, the individual is not engaged in recurrent episodes of binge eating or purging behavior. Um, and there's also the binge eating or purging type, um, which means during the last three months, the individual has engaged in recurrent episodes of binge eating or purging behavior. So there's quite clear guidelines on what constitutes an eating disorder, but I'm guessing a lot harder to fix. Absolutely, and it really needs a multidisciplinary team. We need someone to look at psychological, we need counselling, and we need a GP, and we need a dietitian. Well, that's, that's good, isn't it? Because I can imagine this is an incredibly specialised line of work. There's specific training that mental health professionals can do There's a therapy modality called cognitive and behavioural therapy for eating disorders. So normal CBT, originally created by Aaron Beck, um, has been shown to be really effective in depression and anxiety. Um, But then the program has been tailored for eating disorders as well. If you can get hold of the right support, you've, you've got every chance of recovery. You can, but it's a very long journey. We can't, we can't minimise how long it take, does take to treat eating disorders. It's, it's a long road with a lot of work. And I think what you were alluding to earlier, Beck, about just the societal side of things, that makes it so complicated because obviously we're, we're living in families, we're going to school, we're going to workplaces. It's actually really quite hard to, to... You can't treat something like this in isolation, I'm guessing. Yeah. No, absolutely. And we also have to acknowledge that generally an eating disorder disorder serves a function for the person that has it. In some way, it's protecting them, it's looking after them, it's supported them. Sometimes it can be their only friend, you know, so it's definitely not a simple process. That's an interesting notion, isn't it? The fact that an eating disorder could be your only friend? When we look at behaviour, we look at the function of the behaviour. So with eating disorders... It depends on the purpose that it serves for the person. So some people, you might have heard people say that, um, oh, they're just seeking attention. On one level, that's true. You know, everybody likes feeling connected to other people. And sometimes that connection is through the eating disorder. If they are unwell, then they become cared for by going to a hospital. You know, it's not meant as a, oh, they're just seeking attention and so we're going to dismiss them. 
It's how can we give them this attention so that then they don't need the eating disorder behaviour. Beck, you're keen to get in here. It's also about a vortex of control, you know. When it comes to an eating disorder, it can be, you know, if someone has very little control in their life, the thing that they can control is what they put into their mouth. It, it's complex though, isn't it? And, and we're not really only talking about anorexia. I mean, you listed, was it nine there? Eight? <laughs> and bulimia was up there too. And how does that differ from anorexia? Bulimia, the symptoms are pretty different. Um, in anorexia, it's about restricting food intake. And although there's the binging and purging subtype, um, it's not consistent throughout the three months of the illness. Um, with bulimia, the symptoms are eating in a discrete period of time, so within any two-hour period, an amount of food that is definitely larger than what most individuals would eat in a similar period of time under similar circumstances. Um, the second symptom is a sense of lack of control over eating, um, so feeling like they can't stop, basically. Um, and recurrent inappropriate compensatory behaviors to prevent weight gain so that would be things like self-induced vomiting um, some people misuse laxatives um, some people take diuretics so make them go to the toilet a lot or excessive exercise as well so this is different from vegging out on the couch and just eating too much chocolate no, absolutely. There's a whole heap of behaviours that go into bulimia that make it very different from anorexia and very very different from someone that just has a big feed and sits down on the couch. You know, it's very, it's very different. So the lack of control in, in these two eating disorders? Yeah, um, particularly with, with bulimia, feeling like your behaviour isn't, isn't in your control and then trying to compensate for it so that you don't gain weight. In anorexia, it's absolutely within your control because um, you don't put food in your mouth, but in bulimia, you do, and that's outside of your control. We talked earlier about how Amity Health, we've got, we've got good supports in place, supports that you need, that wraparound care um, for, for parents or for family members, friends. How can they play a role? Eating disorders, they don't happen in a vacuum. There's part of the biopsychosocial model is the social model. And so it does have an impact on the people around the person with the eating disorder. And so we can support the family and loved ones by providing mental health support for them, helping them with distress tolerance um, and emotion regulation, help them to stay calm when they're dealing with, you know, this person's illness because it can be very stressful. People with eating disorders tend to show a lot of behaviours about keeping the disordered eating private, keeping it to themselves. And so family members report feeling like their loved one is lying to them or they're sneaking around or they're so secretive, um, which can be really upsetting. So basically that whole of family approach is, is key really in, in treating these eating disorders. Yeah, family is totally key, especially when it comes to eating disorders in young people and in children. But we have to be mindful that there's a lot of shame associated with all these um, disorders. So we as caregivers, people that love people that have these sort of symptoms and behaviours, we have to make sure that we don't add to that shame because it's already in there. 
is it shame just for the client or, or, or for everyone in the family? I don't actually know how to answer that one. Um, but I think for the person that's experiencing the behaviours, as Alistair stated just before, there's lots of secretism that go around with it. There's there's hiding things. With binge eating, people aren't doing it out, out in front of their families. They're doing it, you know, we, we talk about cupboard eating. You know, it's, there's a lot of secrecy around it. And, and I think that shame element also adds to the reasons why it has been kept secret. One of the things that we know about eating disorders is is how life-threatening they can be. Is that is that too too strong a way of putting it? I don't think it's strong enough. Um, the research shows that disordered eating is the deadliest mental health issue. Um, a lot of people who suicide, they haven't been diagnosed with depression, but a lot of people with eating disorders do end up suiciding. So, yeah, it is... I think that people need to be made aware of the risk involved around disordered eating. Beck, in terms of your perspective there with, with you know, how family can support and just be really involved in this journey, I guess you've got things to add to that too. One of the simplest things we can do as as mothers, as you know, families as people that love people with these behaviours is let's all eat together. Let's normalise eating together. Let's normalise healthy eating. Let's not let's role model how we want our children to eat and how they want to believe about food. Let's minimise diet culture within our families. You know, and we can't just talk about this from a women's from a woman's perspective. Men get eating disorders as well, as do boys. It's hard, isn't it? Because the messages are out there. The the dietitians would say, you know, don't watch your chocolate, watch your fats, watch your sugars. How do we find a balance? It's so hard. The eating healthy is obviously good for us, but when it starts to impact every area of our life, that's when it becomes unhealthy. One of the eating disorders that isn't in the DSM but people are starting to talk about is called orthorexia. So orthorexia is about being so conscious of what you eat that you'll only eat healthy things and if you eat something that's unhealthy or something that you consider to be off limits then that impacts on how you feel sometimes you feel guilty or shame because of what you've eaten and that really drives a lot of eating disorders it's about the distress that the person feels who's um, living with that illness as well as the impact on the different domains through their life you know if you can't go out to a restaurant with friends because you are worried that you won't eat what they eat then that may be a warning sign that it could be worth talking to somebody about disordered eating we've talked today back about just how important the relationship is between clinicians helping to support somebody with an eating disorder. Let's just run through who those clinicians are and how the GP links into all of that. Well, generally the GP or a psychiatrist, depending on who the person's seeking support with, you know, they're going to be the ones that are going to be identifying it, they're going to be the ones that are going to be diagnosing it. From them, from there, and there could be medications, there could be not medications, it depends, you know, what avenue the GP is going down. But after that, we need psychological support or biopsychosocial support. And that's where clinicians 
come in. So clinicians are sort of looking after the mental health aspect, you know, adding that CBT that Alistair was talking about before. The dietitians are paramount, you know, when it comes to eating disorders, this multidisciplinary team is so important. It's actually the evidence-based strategic way to treat these disorders. You know, we can't work at, we, as clinicians, we can't work in isolation. We need to be working with the GP and we also need to be working with the dietitian to get the best outcomes. So that's a really good point, isn't it, about just how the team needs to work together. Yeah, so now if you are worried that you might have an eating disorder and you go and see your GP about it, um, they can create an eating disorder plan for you, which gives you up to 20 Medicare subsidised sessions with the dietitian and 40 sessions with a mental health clinician over a 12-month period. Once you've seen them, if you still need more support, then you can go back to your GP and they'll let you know what the next step is. What about in in the regions? You know, I'm thinking rural WA, rural Australia. You know, how can we support our um, people with eating disorders there? I think we're quite lucky because there's some really big organisations out there that, that do this. They provide telehealth. We have the Butterfly Foundation, Inside Out, Ports... So yeah, there's quite a few that provide telehealth, that provide online support, online courses. It's all there and accessible from our computers and our phones. That's amazing, isn't it? And um, and I and so you mentioned ports there, Alistair. Can you describe that for for people that might not know about it? I think they recently changed their name to Mindspot GP. They are an online mental health service. So people can get the same level of care that we give them, um, but if we're not available, we tend to refer to them. I mean, the beauty, I guess, of services like this is that they they have the same clinical standards that, that we would offer, so they're confidential and they're evidence-based. Absolutely, and I know that that is a big concern for people who live with eating disorders, um, the confidentiality and the... because. Um, going to seek support about it means that you have to talk to somebody about it and all of that private activity that you've been doing whether it's restrictive eating or binge eating or purging you know it can be problematic to talk to somebody about it but that is really the first step to getting better to going on and living a long and full life. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, just how dangerous an eating disorder can be. What are the risks and side effects? Well, we can talk about like short term, like in the short term, your brain isn't going to function very well if it's not being nourished. So you're not going to be able to make good um, good decisions. Often there's a lot of anxiety around that as well because you're not nourishing your brain. Um, we can have constipation, we can have heart palpitations, brittle hair and nails, low body temperature, low energy irregular periods or no periods but then in the long term we can look at diabetes heart problems digestive problems my favorite question that i've had about eating disorders was is it contagious and it's a bit of a complicated question because of the social aspect of it um you can't pass it the same way you would pass a cold if somebody with an eating disorder sneezes on you um then you're not going to catch it but there are also the cultural elements of it so if you know somebody with an eating disorder you're significantly more likely to display disordered eating yourself if somebody around you is talking about diets all the time it's hard to not think about dieting the thing about eating disorders is that they are because they are so secretive it's very difficult to 
say definitively how many people, what proportion of the population has an eating disorder. Um, I've seen numbers ranging from 0.5 of the point five percent of the population, all the way up to like seven percent of the population. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I was out with um, some friends a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it was a book club. We were just literally stuck in the dishwasher at the end of the evening, and literally two or three people straight away started to talk about how their mums had popped them on diets when they were 12 and they'd just never been able to get their eating under control since then. Then another couple joined in. I think we sort of forget how many people it impacts and we've also got to remember that, you know, we're not talking about tiny skinny people, just tiny skinny people. We're talking about people of all body shapes and sizes, people across the age range, you know, young people, old people. As you were talking about with your friends, that that role modelling of that eating, we, you know, I think for those of us especially that were around in the 90s, you know, that, that heroin chic body type that was completely, you know, it was the goal, you know. So these things, it's, it's like a ripple effect, you know, and that's why I think as mums, as dads, as families, we have to, we have to be mindful of the way we talk about food. And body image too. So, yeah, just talking about finding your healthy weight, there's much more of a debate about that now, isn't there? No, absolutely. And we look at health at all shapes and sizes, and that's got to be the priority. And what is positive is seeing now, finally, some advertising of people who are different shapes. Different shapes and sizes, you know. If we look at, we're talking about the 90s before, if we were looking in the media, there was only one body shape that was around. And now we're seeing health across the shapes and sizes, and that's fantastic. Thank you to Beck Vincent and Alistair Waters, two clinicians from our mental health team here at Amity Health. If you'd like to find out more about this topic and others, please go to our website, amityhealth.com.au. Also check the links below in the podcast notes. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time on Health for Good.